Welcome to the No Normal. The No Normal Podcast is a special presentation coming to you from New Music Edmonton. Thank you for joining us for this month's array of conversations, music, and special features. For more information about our organization's programming and events, look us up on social media or visit our website, newmusicedmonton.ca. New Music Edmonton respectfully acknowledges that this celebration of creativity was produced on Treaty 6 territory. Amiskwichiwaskaigan is the traditional gathering place of the many indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our community. We further acknowledge that it was the indigenous peoples of Treaty 6 who established the principles for, and have remained exemplars of, the respectful and caring use of this land for the purposes of art, livelihood, and spirituality. My name is Ian Crutchley, and I'm the Artistic Director of New Music Edmonton. Welcome to the first episode in the second season of The No Normal. We're really happy to be back, and we have a whole new series of episodes for you coming up in the coming months. We're starting off with a really great doubleheader. First off, musician Mustafa Rafiq, interviewed by Suzette Chan, and then that'll be followed by my own interview with Mile Zero Dance Artistic Director, Jerry Morita. And so up first... I'm really happy to welcome back interviewer Suzette Chan, who spoke with Mustafa Rafiq not too long ago. Along with the interview, we'll hear some excerpts from some of Mustafa's recent projects, featuring co-creators Dwenemin, Boyash Noipani, and Taklif Ensemble. So we haven't spoken formally in a while. We did an interview in the before times, and you had mentioned plans to travel. I'm just really curious about where you went and what you took home from your travels. I went to Europe for a couple of weeks. I landed in Amsterdam, but with the plan to go to a smaller city called Utrecht. And in Utrecht, there is a festival that happens that's called Le Guess Who. It started as a reason for the Dutch kind of community to invite Canadian artists over to the Netherlands. And so they would help by writing grants and stuff like this. And this is probably 10 years ago now. But every year you'll see an immensely like eclectic lineup from around the world, but you'll also see a bunch of Canadian representation on the lineup. And so that vacation, that trip was kind of built around going to that festival. After that, I was kind of drawn to Portugal. There's this one performance of Taiwanese Canadian artist Alex Zhang Hungtai that I really love. And it's a performance of him playing in Porto, Portugal. And just that video enough was kind of like, huh, if I'm ever in that area, I should probably go to Portugal and see what's going on over there. And when I ended up going to Portugal, I went to that same museum and saw a show with a a Lebanese artist who's based in Montreal named Jerusalem in my heart. It's kind of an audio visual uh, performance. And I linked up with him getting to like sit down with him and the whole team who put the show on for dinner. So it really felt like one of those right place, right time kind of moments where I, I took a risk on a, on a place that I'd never been in, never really researched or anything. He plays Oud like a traditional Levantinian instrument and I play guitar. So there's some parallels there for me. And after I spent about probably 10 days in Portugal, I had a friend of mine who was from Edmonton. He had just moved to London. I went and visited him for a few days and I got to check out some very beautiful venues. Well, I went to a few museums like the Tate and the Nash- National Portrait Gallery. But I also went to a very historic venue called the Barbican. And I saw a very historic band called the Art Ensemble of Chicago there. And they were celebrating, yeah, celebrating 50 years of being a band together. And so it was a pretty whirlwind. I never really have taken myself on a vacation like that before. And it was, it was beautiful. It sounds like very nourishing for your mind and your eyes and your musical soul. Do you feel that you've had a chance to express that yet? It, it definitely has impacted the way 
I maybe see my future as an artist based in Edmonton, but not always living here. Kind of has me daydreaming about like, oh, it'd be so cool to live in this other place for a little while and just like communicate with the artists out there. Because all it took was me showing up to those cities and I met artists and got to give my props to people that I really dig. And it just happened naturally. So I, I hope to continue to do That's that kind wonderful. of thing. Why don't we talk about if I were a dance? Did you think about potentially thinking of yourself as a dancer as opposed to a dance? Um, my friend Nasra, who is an artist here now in the city, lent me this book, and it's a collection of queer Muslim stories written from the perspective of a queer Somali author living in the UK named uh, Birye Osman. I read this book probably around the same time we were getting ready to release this cassette. And I was just flipping through the pages and I landed on that cover, which was the illustration that author drew for that story called If I Were a Dance. And I just like saw myself for the first time in like a long time. I just saw myself in a, in a drawing. And so when I asked this author if I could use that image and, and take the title and I'd be happy to kind of offer a compensation, they said, you know, what, as long as I get credit, you can use whatever you want. And also, I guess in the last few years, I've been super fortunate to expand like, like the way I create. Like it's not just music anymore, which I'm really glad about it. I've been fortunate enough to get back into theater. That's, the, that's where it all started, was in theater in high school. More recently, I've been able to participate in dance projects, uh, one specifically with the Good Women Dance Company, where you know I came in thinking that I was just going to compose for them. And then they, with their encouragement and their support, I, you know, part of the full piece and I was dancing and doing everything. So I guess it's kind of a nod to everything. It's a nod to maybe be, being seen in media. It's a nod to wanting to participate in other kinds of, of art and expression. And it's also like the composition of the EP kind of just two separate things that I had created that I was like, I need to put something out. It's been you know, years since I put something out and now, why, why not now? Like now just seems like the right time. So it's, it's kind of like a, just a, a small collection of my work. I, I managed to get a hold of the cassette. Side A has four parts and then there's a little bit of tape at the end. For me, it was just really beautiful to listen to the tape and just have that time with it to absorb what I've just heard. And when I'm ready, I can get up and turn it around. I liked hearing that. And I like that you're happy to take your time with it. You're like, yeah, I can just sit here for a bit. And then you flip it and it's a different thing. And it's not just a, it's not a continuation of that album that was just, you were just listening to. For people who aren't familiar with the with the tape, that side is a collaboration between yourself and the poet Duenemann. Her pieces tell a story about how a missing piece of documentation puts her citizenship and her identity into question, even though she was born and raised here in Edmonton. So those details are pretty specific to her, although similar circumstances are not uncommon. But I was wondering how you related to the story and how you went about choosing the instrumentation and the vibe for the music? I've known Shima for a number of years now. I've seen her collaborate with a lot of different people. And so when she asked me to kind of score these pieces, firstly, was like really excited and honored. Her lexicon is just off the chain. She pulls from words and, and statements that I, that's not what I'm grappling with. I learned a lot about her family's history, their transition between here and England and Jamaica and all the moves and all the people that were left behind. Shima's deep in the academic world. For me personally, I've always had a hard time approaching academia, although I'm someone who I really love knowledge. And so it was a great opportunity for both of us to kind of link up. And I felt like we were kind of battling the institution with all of her pieces. All of them have to do with documentation, with stamps, with adjudicators or, or what have you. And for me, I've always really liked not to mess with those systems, but work around them, try my best not to involve myself. I just used what I had. I had a guitar. I took this opportunity to be collaborating with another Black artist to kind of learn the saxophone. 
growing up, I didn't take any music lessons or anything like that. So I assumed those instruments would be off bounds for me forever. And the fact that I was able to just receive a saxophone and then have some noise come out of it was pretty exciting. I wanted to honor where we were both at in the process and that New Music Edmonton totally encourages this kind of thing where it's like, yeah, if you're just learning something, include it in the piece. And the sounds that you hear are me lamenting in my in my apartment by myself and just trying to like make it through the winter and feeling encouraged by the darkness uh, of Shima's words because there's a lot of liberation in there. There's a lot of standing on your own two feet in there that I really resonate with. It is fascinating. And the physical media came with her poems printed on miniature reproductions of some of these official documents, like the high school certificate, I think there's passport in there. Why was it important to include these pieces in the package? I think for me, as a fan of physical media, first off, it's really nice to have other things included in this. Also, as someone who has bought cassettes and never played them, purely for the memory or for the support, I love including extra goodies. Secondly, I think, yeah, going back to the way Shima writes, you kind of just have to, you have to really sit with it. Like I composed a lot of it to work around her voice. Shima is supposed to be front and center. And so when I wanted to put out this release that had her work as well as other people's work, I was like, how do I make this more hers? Like, how do I ensure that she's being represented the right way? And she had already created these documents. Like she had scanned her, her birth certificate and written all over it. And that's how those poems were brought to me. <laughs> like that was just like beautiful. And, and so it got me excited thinking like, oh, this is great. This, can, this doesn't just have to be like an audio only thing. Those images are kind of intense. Like when you see just like scribbling over top of those, um, those government officially documented, sealed, whatever things. Yeah, it's, like It's an aesthetic object, but it it's also helps to tell the story and it makes it very real. Like this isn't mm-hmm. a fairy tale. This is not made up. This is part of her, her life and her experience here. That's right. Yeah. And I guess with the physical edition, it was just a matter of making sure that she felt like she was also being represented, especially considering it was under my name. I wanted to make sure everybody had autonomy and space carved out for themselves because without Shima and Boyash, there would be no If I Were a Dance. A landscape of unknown that lives in the old place at the end of the road, ominous with the folklore, I lend out its bones, the marrow of truth, the pit of ripe fruit, the pith of some problem pulled from the roots for the festering pain it wrecks like a nuisance tooth standing on my own too I inspect flecks of truth, build and bust open in hottest pursuit of the love of my life, the end of the night.
turn to the B-side, which features Buish, Nupani, the tabla player. And you were just mentioning about how you wanted to make sure the artists were represented. And how did you feel you brought Buish into this project? The piece that we recorded was an improvisation for Latitude 53. We hadn't seen each other in a while. He came over for dinner. Uh, we cooked together. We watched a movie. We talked about pretty much everything except for music. And eventually we kind of, I picked up the guitar and he started playing drums. And we were kind of like, okay, what are we going to do tomorrow? Like, what is, what's the vibe? And so Boyash pulled out a poem of his own that was actually written by his brother. That's the voice that you would hear in the in that piece. It's him reciting this poem from his brother. So he had a couple ideas that he wanted to put forth and I was excited to help like arrange them, essentially just being like this first, then this, then this, then this. And so here's all of our materials. We're going to go perform tomorrow morning. Let's just eat. And like we watched The Host, which is that Bong Joon-ho movie. I think it was more of just like I invited him to come play with me because Latitude offers, you know, like a lot of money for a performance. And I was like, well, I should share this with my friends. Like, you want to split it? You want to come do this improv for 15 minutes and just split the pay? And, and we can ha- we have a reason to hang out and talk about anything. And Buyash doesn't live here anymore, unfortunately, but uh, he's living in Nepal again. And so for me, I am so fortunate that I have that, you know, like a little bit of Buyash that's with me until we meet again, hopefully. He is destined to kind of just be an artist forever and i'm just glad that we ever got the chance to link up and i hope that it's not the last time Is he also one of your inspirations for this idea of doing more travel, coming back when time is right? I think at least a little bit, you know, you can't help but be drawn towards those things. At least I, I find that. And I think as, as now an adult, um, I feel so fortunate whenever I get to travel at all. Like I grew up very fortunate in that I traveled a lot, but it was almost exclusively for weddings. So, you know, I, I've been to Australia like three times, but every time was only for a wedding and we didn't do anything else but the wedding and that was it 
And so crazy what we used to do before the pandemic. <laughs> I know, I know, right? I know. And so, you know, I feel very fortunate. I think that, yeah, travel has definitely made a massive impact on how I value myself. I think sometimes it can be very difficult to stay stationary in one place. And so I feel very grateful that I have a life that I can pack up and travel a little bit. And those things, they just impact you. I wanted to expand a little bit more on something you said about doing different kinds of work. Is there anything that you look out for or any kind of criterion that is a through line for all of these projects? A personal theme that I have been finding I, I carry with me has been unbinding. It's taken many different forms and it's been called many different things, but I think I've been really sitting on unbinding. So much of my practice is sometimes wrapped up in this doubt of, oh, you're not educated in any way. Like you don't have the skills or whatever. You don't move like these other people, but for some reason I'm still making art. So what's the deal there? I've never taken lessons or, or any of that kind of thing, but yet I still create. There has to be something that I've been working on. And I think it's been unbinding myself from these constraints, whether they are racially based, whether they are based in gender perception, like what people see of me, whether they're based on my own confidence. I feel like I can play what I, what I, what I know, and that's just what it is. I've been carrying that with me through theater projects that I've been fortunate to kind of workshop and play with. And when I worked with Good Women Dance, that was a big unbinding moment for me as someone who not only doesn't really dance, like didn't really dance before that in public or anything, that opened me up. And so, you know, that gave me a lot of confidence and definitely unbinded me from, yeah, just the stuff you live with, the stuff that you you carry with you every single day. And with this new project that I have, I encourage all the people who are playing with me to just to play freely and try to unbind yourself. I'm not in charge, you know, like we're all in charge, whatever happens, we're all reacting in real time. And someone plays something that makes them feel good, then I'll, I'll react in turn and, and hopefully we can build off of that. Can you speak a little more about the new project? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I have this new group called Duck Leaf. Duck Leaf meaning a great sorrow or a deep worry or kind of like burden that you do carry with you. I think I heard that word a lot growing up. My mom would say like, she's going through Duck Leaf. Like she's going through a lot of spiritual difficulty or difficulty on this earth. And so I like taking those words and just making them my own again, giving them my own meaning, especially as I, in high school and stuff, was not really, I don't know, I wasn't really sure if I was a Muslim or if I could be considered that because when I would go places, people would see me and think I was like not, or I have certain things about me that are prohibited in Islam. And so reusing a lot of those words and taking those to be my own is nice. It's a nice reclamation and get to own those things and no one can tell me otherwise. And yeah, and the, the group is it's intended to be improvisation, but there are no limits to what I want this group to be. Like, I feel like the initial cohort of performers that I invited, Parker Thiessen, Jenna Turner, Dwenemin, Sean McIntosh, Ethan Bokma, and Joseph Burnbank. They're all people that I've known in the community for many years. Jenna and Parker are kind of my noise mom and dad who first brought me in when I first started playing shows. And so I just wanted a reason really just to play with these people. I'm especially interested in how I can show up to the jam and not have to play the whole time. I encourage everybody to like, you know, you can put your instrument down for a minute and just listen to what everybody else is doing. Nothing is really set in stone, but I, I want to make sure everybody has space to do that thing. It is the same as I was like, the first show we played was billed as Mustafa Rafiq's Thakleaf Ensemble. But I think that was more just to introduce the idea of the band to everybody. And now we're just moving forward with Thakleaf Ensemble because I don't necessarily want to be front and center in any way. I can play more freely and I can just be a part of the group. Are there other dates or recordings that are scheduled? I'm asking for selfish reasons because I want to see this show. (laughs) We have nothing planned yet, but I hope to continue recording. I think what I want out of this is less shows and more recordings. And I just want to learn from those recordings. Like I want to hear what I'm playing 
I want to hear what my bandmates are playing and how I can learn from that and how I can be a better complementary player to my friends, um, especially with there being so many different instruments on stage. But the one thing that I'm learning is that we need a lot of time to set up. <laughs> we need like an hour to set up and then like another five, 40 minutes just to sound check. And so asking for that sometimes can be really, can be a lot for a DIY show, you know? But I'm realizing that I get it right. There's no reason to force it. And above all, this should be fun and easy. And so far we've, we've, we've done that. this group of really creative people can take the time that they want and let the thing grow. I don't think anyone in the band is in, in too much of a rush and I'm trying to hook onto that and, and really make sure that I'm not in a rush because I think sometimes as like the organizer of the band or something, you can maybe make steps like, oh, what if we got a gig this month? And then everybody starts thinking about it. And then you're not thinking so much about like, oh, what do I want to bring to jam? What do I want to rehearse? It's more like, oh, I got to get show ready. And I'm not really like enjoying that as much. I just want to make music again. Is there anything else that we should be looking out for that you're involved in? Yeah, there's a number of things. I'll be working a lot with some theater folks next year. I'll be working on some more scores for live theater, which I'm really excited about. I just kind of finished wrapping up a movie with two friends where I acted in the film. And as two big film like cinephiles, they bought a bunch of gear and we made a movie together over the summer. And so I think that's going to come out next year. Um, I'm excited to maybe jump into that a little more and be behind the camera, be in front of the camera. I don't know. I guess I just want to give a shout out to New Music Edmonton and also CJSR. Both of y'all have been supporting me uh, a lot over the last couple of years. And I don't think I would be the artist moving as confidently as you know without without your support so yeah shout out new music edmonton i i have all the all the respect in the world for enemy and uh, still blows my mind that how successful the, the organization is it's exciting okay all right well thank you and 
and I hope to see you or hear from, from you in some form or another. It was a pleasure, Susan. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye. New Music Edmonton is a not-for-profit arts organization and is dependent on a vast array of sponsors, members, and volunteers. Funding for this season's presentations, including this podcast, has been provided by the Canada Council for the Arts, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, SoCan Foundation, Alberta Gaming and Liquor, and the City of Edmonton. We thank them all for their generosity and continued commitment to recognizing the vital role that the arts play in our lives. Thanks also to the members, volunteers, and NME staff and board members who keep it all together and happening for New Music Edmonton. And of course, thank you for joining us. This is part two of The No Normal. And coming up next is my conversation with Mile Zero Dance Artistic Director, Jerry Morita. I've had the privilege of seeing Jerry perform countless times, and for that matter, I've been on stage with Jerry performing myself. But having a couple hours just to chat with Jerry and find out some things I wanted to know was great. Whether you know Jerry or not, I think you're going to find this interview a real treat. It's in two parts, so in the middle of these two parts we're going to break and listen to some music, which is by recent Jerry Morita collaborators, Farad Kosravi and Daniel Stadnicki. How did you come to be part of Mile Zero Dance? I did an audition. And I joined the education teachers that go out to elementary schools. And then I became artist in residence. And then the artistic director moved to Calgary and I got the job. And that would have been what year? I think I started working there in 2004 and then like 2006. I always struggle a little bit with what to call the sort of primary focus mile zero. I don't know if there's really one specific term that works for it, but do you have one in mind? Mile zero has a dance focus, a contemporary dance focus, but then you look at that and what the heck does that even mean? Dance is a very interdisciplinary project by nature. You're working with designers, you're working with sound people, you're working with other bodies, and of course, minds and feelings and brains are attached to those bodies. Mm-hmm. And working with other disciplines, you learn new methods and ways of putting things together that you wouldn't normally come across. All these, they call them the silos of coming apart, and I really like that. And it's something that I have to admit wasn't a big part of my thinking until I came to Edmonton. Is there something about this place we live in that makes this more possible than it might be elsewhere? I think so. People here are very open. They're very open to collaboration and to new things and to working with new people. Other cities I've lived in, it seemed more set in stone, whereas Edmonton, I don't know, it's got a an open and youthful energy that fosters new relationships. And if somebody has an idea, people aren't going to say no to it. They're going to say, okay, go try it. Generally, I think there's a lot of experimentation going on here. And you have all kinds of people learning other disciplines all the time. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how your own artistic interests were shaped into embracing this way of thinking about multidisciplinary work. Also, in your case, lots of improvisation and Something that I think I've always noticed about you, which is that you can perform with music in the traditional sense, or sound, or sometimes even nothing. Oh, that's a big question, Ian. (laughs) (laughs) In in ballet, you know, small school, north of Lloydminster there. The type of ballet that we learned was Royal Academy of Dancing. Hmm, right. So every single class, we would do the exact same thing, and we had a live piano player accompanying. And so that was just normal. And then when I went to Simon Fraser for my undergrad, we had a live drummer, Albert St. Albert. He's, he's a bit of an icon mm-hmm. in the dance scene. 
that live accompaniment really built a musicality in the movement. I also studied, you know, band and stuff like that for years. Did you, what's, what did you play? Well, flute, and then I graduated to the piccolo, which was oh, much yes. louder. And smaller. Yep. Yeah, when I was at Simon Fraser, I had the fortune to study with Ruth Emerson, and she had been one of the original Judson Church people. And so she was hooked into that postmodern dance movement, which was centered around New York City. And a lot of artists who worked at Judson Church were kind of the disciples of John Cage. With that came ideas of using sound effects or nothing or absurd music or just somebody reading text that was unrelated. And also how to score performance as an event-based happening as opposed to choreography. Mm -hmm. And that really influenced me a lot. Can I just ask you then about the difference between scores and choreography in terms of dance? More and more, to me, choreography is redundant because what you're trying to do is to shape bodies to do what you would do. As a dancer, I always had my own idea of how I should move and how I felt. And very often I could not do the motions that the choreographer would do because I had a very different style of moving and a different body type and it would feel really unnatural on me sometimes and instead of <laughs> beating myself up as if my technique or dancing wasn't good enough I actually went deeper into that uh, did a lot of authentic movement somatic techniques that try to bring out a natural flow in the body and then when I started studying martial arts and then later the Noguchi Taiso work coming out of Japan, everything is improvised there. If you want to repeat something the exact same way twice, we have film and video that can do that perfectly. I'm more interested in the variance of interpretation of the tasks that I give to a dancer. I'm, I'm seeking a more collaborative, improvised future. And getting it in the present, I think. I've been lucky enough to be in a performance with you, which was Chasm. Initially, me thinking that I was going to be tucked away in a corner and out of the light, and then they ended up right in the middle, which was actually a profoundly changing experience for me. It's also seems to me that venues play into this in a big way for you, because if I think of five different pieces I've seen you in, they've been in five different places for various reasons. That's so interesting, because very often I work from the venue as the first thing. Space really informs how people are able to receive the work. And I like it being versatile, so that each show has its own discovery of the venue as well. Wondering if you could talk about some of the earlier influences on you musically, and maybe even perhaps talk about some people you're thinking about these days. I got interested in Armory Schaefer a long time ago, and those sort of wacky scores that could be played by groups of humans that didn't necessarily have to be trained musicians. And that idea has, has filtered over to the dances I create when I do large-scale works. There's often a number of professional dancers, but then there's also pickup dancers who are just people that felt like dressing up like a magpie that day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I love that, that community access mm -hmm. in work as well, because you don't always have to be a trained professional to do cool things. And there's something about play in, in art making that should be a part of everybody's life. Mm. Some people I worked with who really influenced me were Yvonne Bonenfant. We had a, a collective called Tunnel Works in Montreal, and we just experimented. And he became an extended vocalist and really out there somatic body work into extended vocals. 
When I worked in Tokyo, I worked a lot with Hideo Arai, who works closely with traditional Japanese music, but he also plays music himself in performance all the time, like a, like a happy kid. <laughs> When we started working together, we couldn't speak each other's language, so we would just keep dancing. But that was really influential, was more the Japanese way of, of thinking about aesthetics. It took me a long time to figure out what, what the difference was. Sometimes it's about more time and less action. And even there's a different arc of, of the narrative of a show. A slow, slow, slow build. And then when it ramps up, it hits really high. And then it doesn't have a denouement. It just ends right after the highest point. Mm -hmm. And that, that goes way back into no theater history. And of course, they're working with live musicians. Sure, right. And those live musicians are doing very repeatable work, but it's improvised. And those kind of scores where you're allowed to make two claps in five minutes. And then I was very influenced by Scott Smallwood. The whole university crowd around Scott is full of ideas about use of technology in mm -hmm. sound. And I learned a lot from working with various people such as yourself, Scott, Nico Arnez, and Sean Pinchbeck. There seems to be people arriving all the time in Edmonton. Yeah, I worked with Farhad and Daniel last year, and I'd never heard of them before. Really cool music and yeah. long-form improvisation with totally different instruments.
could you talk a little bit about what goes into creating an improvised performance with a live musician? It's more like cooking, where you you have the ingredients and you put them together and see what happens, and then you apply some pressure and heat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is that how cooking works? <laughs> Sometimes I like to just start and do the long form improv and see see where things go. Other times I have a really specific idea in mind. I didn't used to be a talkative person. I was somebody who danced because I couldn't talk. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. So, yeah, I, I find that the work says a lot itself once it starts. Mm -hmm. and I can tell if the music is really off, if it's not working. I can tell and sort of direct it back or give feedback. Is improvisation something that you practice? It's a complicated thing because, of course, I've had tons of art training and tons of choreographic training. And so I'm able to assimilate all of that very quickly as I'm dancing. And even though I'm an adult, I still am like a little kid. I'll often start with a costume, an article of clothing that I like, or hmm. some light or special effect that I that I'm curious about. I think that good improvisation is shamanistic and that the performer is able to suspend reality for a period of time. It can be a very lame and boring and destructive practice if it's not done well. Mm -hmm. Destructive? In what way could it be destructive? I mean, you could break things. Well, well, I've done that. But. <laughs> you know, if you're dancing with other people, like somebody could get hurt. When I would first start improvising, I, I couldn't remember where I went or what I did. So that in itself was practice, just knowing what happened and being able to talk about it and decide to keep things and throw things away. I think that's an interesting aspect of it that not everybody would think of right away. A lot of practices I, I use from authentic movements. So say you would improvise for 10 minutes and then you'd write for 10 minutes and then you would watch somebody else improvise for 10 minutes and you do those things and, and gradually you build a, a working vocabulary for memory. Of course, authentic movement has very specific vocabulary you're able to use. You're not allowed to say, I like that. I don't like that. Authentic movement isn't a term I know. What does that refer to? It's a, it's a movement somatic practice that comes out of Jungian analysis. That ties in a little bit with a question I wanted to ask you, which is, is there any ways in which the so-called real world comes into what you do? Is it that even though what you're doing may appear to be abstract, somehow it's informed by what's going on outside of the artistic world? Whether consciously or not, it's always intertwined. No, I, I don't think you can really separate yourself from the world. As a dancer, though, I often ask myself in creation, why isn't this person talking? Because, you know, we all talk now. People are very talkative. And to to have an experience that's so profound that you have to dance it seems like okay you're either crazy or spiritually awakened or celebrating something like what is it that takes you to that heightened state where you need to move your body jerry can you talk to me a little bit about what sight lines is so that's the name of the current season for mile zero dance and does that indicate there's a theme or is it just kind of a, a nice phrase that you like to use to title the season? Uh, both. Yeah, so Sightlines is about introducing site-specific work to the audience, asking the audience to be active participants in their own viewing experience. And whether it's digital or live, finding their own perspective because Traditional theaters have one seat, it's the best seat in the house, and it's center-center, 
And that's where the lighting designer sits when and if you thought one of these seats in the corner, it might be considered crappy. But it also might be a seat where you can see into the backstage. Mm. So there's that questioning and troubling of sight lines. Yeah. It's yeah. something that exists between you and the thing you're looking at. I love the mm. way performance art just does it with no explanation. Yeah. No audience handling or care whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> just follows the artist around and plops himself on the floor or stands there uncomfortably. Mm -hmm. And you can come and go when you want. That's interesting to me for this year as we explore non-traditional venues. And you've succeeded with some of your online events in creating a sense of community around the event so that people feel a little bit more like they are at a show. And um, I mean, my son is a big gamer. Yeah. I remember when he was probably like grade three, grade four, and he'd be in his room for hours. And I'd be saying, like, shouldn't you be going out and doing something? It's a nice Saturday. Yeah. Oh, I'm playing this game with all my friends from right. across the world. Yeah. And so there's a whole generation that's grown up with that remote sense of community. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not identical to in-person community, but it's a very good way to communicate. And that was kind of the approach that I took with Mile Zero Dance during the pandemic was to try to keep the chat alive. People want to talk and they want to type. They want to have their backstories. They want to take pictures at the show, put it on Instagram. All that extra activity is another form of outreach. Restricting that puts you back into an old-fashioned Western paradigm of art viewing where it's special and precious. I'm done with that. If you were given the opportunity to go completely back to just live shows, would you? I'm interested in retaining the online. Yeah. A few reasons. Number one, it gives access to people who can't get to shows. So right. People who are stuck at home for whatever reason. Another reason is dancers have generally not had access to their own archives. This pandemic is forcing us to record everything at a certain level of quality and then make it available. I don't know what it's going to look like. You know, in some art forms, I think reading clubs are getting to be popular again. I think house performances with a small number of people is starting to happen again. Maybe it's, it's about thinking small before we get big and really like fostering the intimacy of the work. There's so many ways. There's so many ways. Mm -hmm. One thing I've noticed, which I'm happy to share with your public, is mm -hmm. that shopping malls are opening up to artists. I didn't know that. Defunct shopping malls are the oh. They have artists in there using the space for free or for very cheap to, you know, be, be a marketing device for the landlord. Right. Yeah. Well, why don't, I, why don't I turn that back at you in the form of a question? The major department store in the downtown shopping mall has gone. You're talking about the bay? The bay, yeah. So that big two-story space is completely empty now with the idea that this would be offered to you as a venue for a show, what would you do with it? Oh, that would be so much fun. Yeah. I would have I would have stuff everywhere. And the audience would move around. Yeah. So the different artists would have their, their own turf and then there'd be like viewing spots that you could stand on. Maybe a few chairs scattered around. I would give each audience member a shopping cart. <laughs> I think we're going to see more and more participatory art, and it's going to cross different cultural traditions. I think that's what's coming. What kinds of things do you see that entailing? I, I have a lot of friends who have joined choirs. Mm -hmm. So 
people who want to sing. They want to sing in a big group of people. Even something like swing dance or uh, hip hop ciphers. Participatory art, I think, is it's healthy. Mm-hmm. And we need to encourage professionals to share their skills in these areas and not necessarily be the only ones that get heard or watched. That then was my interview with Jerry Morita, including a break in the middle to listen to Day of Creation by Farad Kosravi and Daniel Stadnicki. So that's a wrap on the No Normal Season 2, Episode 1. Please check out the listings on our podcast, as well as our website and social media, where you'll find more information and links pertaining to Mustafa Rafiq and Jerry Morita. You'll also find information on their collaborators, Juwenemin, Boyash Noipani, Takleaf Ensemble, Farad Kosravi, and Daniel Stadnicki. And also, some links on my fellow interviewer, Suzette Chan. Thank you to my colleagues at New Music Edmonton and also the co-creators of this podcast, Caitlin Sean Richards and Oscar Zebart. Thank you also to our partner CJSR, who broadcast episodes of The No Normal twice a month. We'll be back with another episode soon. Bye-bye. Thank you.